guys, and welcome to another episode of Pickles and Vodka Podcast. Hope your week was good. My week has been okay. I've been in Seattle for two weeks now, officially, and still finding my way in the city, but I met up with my college roommate this week, and we've been having a blast. It's been good to like hang out with someone I know. I did start bullet journaling, which for those who don't know, it's like a system where you have a notebook and it's like half planner and half journal and you kind of make it whatever you want to be and it's really nice if you're like a creative person um, you can kind of see what works for you so every week I will make little boxes for each day and in the boxes I'll put events that I have work schedules I'll put goals that I want to mark off and then I'll have a section for notes where I can write observations about the day and about the week And it's been really cool um, now that I've been doing it for a week to look back and see, oh, this day I was really sad. These days I felt like I spent too much money. This day I saw a friend. It helps give you a bigger picture of your week and your year as a whole. And there's a bunch of other things you can do with it. Um, If you're interested, look it up online. This week's guest is someone that I met online in one of my mental health communities She's an amazing person, very knowledgeable about mental health and education. She has been in education for a long time, both as a student and a teacher. She is a diver. She talks about a lot of stuff that is super interesting, and I think you guys will really enjoy our conversation. With that said, if you guys want to be guests on the show, please hit me up because after next week, I will be looking to fill the slots with new guests. If you have a story you want to share, if you've been through shit and you just want a platform to talk about it, this is the perfect place. I'm open to any topic. I want to help people learn more about mental health and not just other people. Like I want to learn more about other topics too. Also, Even if you don't want to be a guest, but you want to share your story, or maybe you have a question about something mental health related, um, you can always email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, picklesandvodkapodcast. You know the deal. So yeah, don't hesitate to hit me up. Okay, so now that I've said that, I am just going to jump right into my interview with my guest. Hope you guys enjoy and have a great week. So thanks for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. You're my first remote guest ever. Woohoo! So <laughs> you get honored. a gold star. <laughs> I'm so honored. Um, do you want to just like introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, so my name is Anastasia. I am 24. I... I'm obviously going to be talking about education and mental illness today, so I guess I'll start with my history of mental illness. Woo. I know, such a great <laughs> topic. Right? Uh, my family actually has a pretty extensive history of anxiety. It's a blast. So my mom is actually on Zoloft for her anxiety and potentially depression. If she is depressed, she hasn't really told me. I don't know if maybe she does have depression and just like doesn't talk about it or what. Um, But I know for sure that she medicates for her anxiety. And then my sister also has anxiety. And, of course, I have anxiety. And we're just kind of like a – our whole family is kind of a carnival of chaos. 
I love uh, that. Carnival of Chaos. <laughs> we actually, when my sister comes up to visit, so it's me and my sister as the kids, and I have one dog. My boyfriend has a dog. She has a dog. My parents have two dogs. Yeah, so we are we are truly just like a, a zoo slash a, a carnival slash just a bunch of clowns with all of our different anxiety and all the things we deal with. So um, All your dogs. All the dogs. Every <laughs> single dog that you could imagine. And honestly, like I would adopt like 50 more dogs if I could because I just love them so much, but... Before, yeah, so. before we started this episode, she we had the hardest time like trying to get her dog happy. She was like begging outside the door. I like I knew she was gonna be sad if she could hear me. So I like I tried putting her in her crate and I put a blanket in front of the door and her crate is in my bedroom and I closed the door and I put the blanket in front of it and then I came into the bathroom and I closed the door to the bathroom and I put a towel in front of that. And you could like still hear her crying. Aww. <laughs> She, honestly, she's fine. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so I was saying earlier that she's actually also my ESA. She's my emotional support animal. Oh, and yeah. Tell about that. So it's actually something that I I know a decent amount about, but I'm not like – I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I'm, I know enough that I can list her as an ESA without any issues. But basically, like, there's a difference between an ESA – a therapy dog and a service animal. Okay. And at least where I'm from, there's actually been a lot of issues with people faking service animals. And I know that it's like a nationwide issue. Basically an emotional support animal is it doesn't require any special training. Um, it just requires a diagnosis of some sort of health issue, usually a mental health issue. And then documentation from your like therapist or counselor stating that having a companion animal is beneficial to your treatment plan. So like one of my biggest pet peeves is when people say like, oh, it's like my service animal when they're talking about an ESA that like clearly doesn't have any training and they try to bring it into like a public space because according to the ADA, that's not legal. And that's what causes a lot of problems for people who do have disabilities where they need to have a service animal and then they're all of a sudden being refused access to places based on the people who fake service animals. Right. So what were the three types? You said ESAs, support animal, what was the third type? So there's ESAs, therapy animals, which is usually usually therapy dogs, which are they have to go through special training to be able to uh, provide quote-unquote therapy services. They basically go in and like hang out with people, but um, it's usually hospitals and schools. Okay. And then there's service animals, which are, again, usually dogs, but people can have whatever kind of service animal, I guess, suits them best. I'm not really sure what the process is for legal service animals. Um, I know that they require extensive training to be able to provide a service, and that's kind of the whole point. So, like, People can have seizure alert dogs, and those are service animals. People can have oh. seeing eye dogs, and those are obviously service animals. And right, then that's what I thought about. Right, and that's that's what people mostly think about. But like seizure, PTSD alert dogs that like are trained to what your triggers are and will keep you away from them, and also they can take you out of kind of some of the symptoms of PTSD. Like when people have panic attacks and like PTSD flashbacks, they can take them out of those. And so those kinds of service animals are very important. So I they think. know how to recognize the signs of that. Yeah. And a lot of people actually have technically, I think for flights, they qualify as emotional support animals, but in my opinion, they act more as service animals because they can 
detect the signs of like a panic attack and they can pull their handlers out of those kind of episodes. And so that's actually, that's, that's kind of how my dog so acts. Badass. It is. It's really cool. Um, and it's extremely helpful. And like I said, that's, that's kind of how my dog acts. She doesn't have any special training. You know, I've, I've had her for two years and she's my little sweet baby angel. And she can tell when I'm really stressed out and she'll usually just kind of sit by me. And then if I start to go into a panic attack, she'll kind of like lay on me. (laughs) And I mean, she doesn't go to the same extent as like a lot of service animals do that are trained for it. Like they will literally like shove their nose in your face and like start licking your face. And she doesn't do that. I think she just like tries to calm me down more than anything else. Yeah. Rather than like specifically try to bring me out of a panic attack. So yeah, you, we were talking about your uh, mental health history. Um, yeah, yeah, How long sorry. have you been? No, no, don't apologize. I love hearing about all the different types of service dogs and whatnot. Super fascinating. And I'm glad that you have, you said her name's Danny. Her name's Danny. Yeah, it's short for Daenerys because she looks like a little dragon. Yes, I love <laughs> it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The new season's coming out this year. I just remember. I know. I'm super psyched. Oh, my God. I'm super psyched. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that later. It's fine. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah. So your mental health history, um, how long have you been having panic attacks? It's funny that you ask because I realized, I think earlier this year that, so a little bit of backstory. I was a gymnast growing up. I was a gymnast for 10 years and I supposedly had exercise induced asthma And it's not that I don't think I did. Like, I definitely do still to this day, like, sometimes have trouble breathing when it's really cold and I'm trying to go for a run or after I go really hard at the gym and cardio, sometimes I'll go home and I'll kind of be wheezing. And if I laugh really hard at something, I'll have, like, a coughing fit, which is kind of hilarious, but also, like, (laughs) the best for my health. Yeah. Um, But so I was diagnosed with exercise-induced asthma. But at the same time, when I would have one of my quote-unquote asthma attacks it was usually during like conditioning for like I think my coach at the time called them like suicide runs or something and basically you would like run to a line and run back and then the next and then run back and you had to do it under a certain time if you didn't you had to do it again and like I would get myself so worked up so I had quote-unquote exercise induced asthma and we were doing those and it would make me short of breath and then I would get kind of panicky and then I would go into like what I thought at the time was an asthma attack, but like thinking back on it now, that is basically how I feel when I have a panic attack. Hmm. And so it's just a lot of like hyperventilating and crying and not being able to catch my breath. And so I get really lightheaded. And when it's really bad, I get to the point where I end up throwing up from them and it's really unpleasant. So how old were you when you started experiencing that? The ones in gymnastics practice was when I was in like fourth grade. Okay. And I, I don't even know if I can really say that it's anxiety-related or not. I just know that that's really close to how I feel when I have a panic attack now, recognizing it as what I feel like it is. So the first time I had a panic attack, you know, triggered by anxiety or, like, emotional distress rather than physical distress was, hilariously enough, when I was in high school and I was, like, broken up with by the first boy that I ever really dated and I thought my life was over. And oh. it's so over dramatic thinking back on it now but like oh I've been there don't worry it's just like it's such a rush of emotions that I was not equipped to be able to handle so I would say that was and that was the first time that I had one that was bad enough to make me throw up too and I knew I had anxiety but like 
it didn't affect me as much when I was in high school or even when I was in the first part of undergraduate school as it did when I was a junior in college. And then that was also when I really had my first recognizable or at least like to me, I recognized the fact that I was dealing with depression. Hmm. And I went through all of the like telltale signs of it. I lost interest in all of the most important things to me. I actually quit diving for almost a whole semester. And I like wasn't making it to half my classes. Like I, I was doing really, I was having a really, really hard time. What really like made me realize, so I was a fine art major in undergrad. I was taking a sculpture class and I just like didn't really care about it, which is hilarious because <laughs> apparently I was like good at it. We had a juried exhibition every year and that year I entered like five pieces into the juried exhibition and I was a ceramics focus and I entered in one print, two sculptures and two of my ceramics pieces. And the two sculptures are the things that got into the show. Wow, (laughs) go figure. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. The, The one class I like couldn't be asked to even go to half the time. That's so funny. It was actually one of our first projects that I like, kept having like meltdown after meltdown over the prompt was to take something very small and turn it into something very large. Hmm. And I chose to make a really big cupcake and I just like was crying over it every day because I just couldn't get it right. And I think it goes hand in hand with my anxiety is that I'm definitely a perfectionist. I was just about to ask, do you consider yourself a perfectionist? (laughs) Absolutely. I do. Yes. 100%. And I definitely think that that doesn't help my anxiety. No, 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 no. Well, and at this time, too, I wasn't actually formally diagnosed with anxiety I was in undergrad. Going, I was going to ask you um, how your teachers, like, what roles they played in all this. Like, did you tell them about it? I mean, they must have realized when you were skipping classes. Most of them were fucking garbage, um, honestly. And, like, luckily when you're a fine art major in college, attendance isn't necessarily mandatory as long as you are... You know, because your professors know when you're actually spending time in the studio. And nobody really talked to me except for my ceramics professor. And he actually, like, went into the conversation and he was like, why are you being such a piece of shit? What? <laughs> because that's, like, he didn't... Okay, I should I should really preface that with some backstory. Yeah. He likes to... When he knows that his students who are focusing in his specific area have a lot of promise, but they're not like living up to their potential. So like they're not in the studio and they're not showing that they like really want to be there. He'll have what we call the talk with them. And he'll be like, you need to actually like get serious about this and come in here and like show that you want to be here because it makes me really pissed off when you say that you want to do all this stuff and you have all this ambition and you don't actually show up. He has it with everyone is the funny thing. Like everyone, regardless of whether or not they're dealing with anxiety and depression and all of that stuff. Wow. Yeah. He's a really great guy. The way I say it makes him sound like he's a total asshole. But like, no, he's, I, I have respect he's for people best. like that. You know, uh, don't pull any punches. Right. And he definitely like, if he thinks that you can be doing more or doing better, he lets you know, which I love about him. But yeah, so he like had the talk with me and I just like broke down into tears and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm having such a hard time. Like, I can't even get myself out of bed to go to practice. Like, I'm such a piece of garbage and I know it. Like, I do really want to be here, but I just, like, I feel like I'm floundering and I I don't know what I'm doing. And he was like, his face just, like, dropped. 
And he was like, oh, my God. (laughs) He was like, okay, like, let me know what I can do. Because, like I said, he has the talk with all of his students when he feels like it's the time to have it and tell them to start getting serious. And, you know, obviously I hadn't told anybody that I was struggling. Like, even my roommates didn't know. And one of them is one of my very best friends. Oh, wow. To this day. Um, well, that and... goes along with being a perfectionist, too, is hiding your struggles from everyone else. You have to maintain this image. Right. And you just, like, you don't want to... I think that there's, you know, there's obviously such a stigma with mental health. And there's kind of this, like, intimidation threshold where you don't want to admit that you're not okay. Like, you have to put on this facade of being this confident and capable person. And, you know, when you've been able to do things on your own for so long as soon as you start to struggle you just keep trying to do everything by yourself even though you need help and it it takes so much to admit that you do need help and you can't do it by yourself exactly and I think that was one of the hardest things for me um well let's back up a little bit so you said you had anxiety growing up you have a family history of anxiety and then you said you went to college and you found out you were depressed right yeah. So what led up to the de- realization that you were depressed? It was it was honestly just the fact that I I was down. I wasn't sad because I think that a lot of people, I mean it's totally like when they talk about depression in the office and Dwight's like isn't that a fancy word for being sad all oh the time? Oh my god, I love that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves that episode. It's it's iconic. But yeah. um I, I do think that there's definitely an an idea that depression does mean that you're you're just sad and you're crying all the time. But like the first time I started to go through depression in its purest sense as clinical depression, I wasn't really sad as much as I was just straight up apathetic. Like I just didn't care about things. I, I couldn't mm. get myself out of bed. I didn't care about the things that were most important to me. And I was sad. Like there were days that I would just cry for no reason. But like the majority of the time was not that I was feeling sad, but just that I was feeling nothing. And I think that that's something that most people don't recognize. Like even if they themselves are going through depression, they don't necessarily recognize those symptoms as depression. Yeah, for sure. So that was kind of what led to me kind of realizing it. Do you know, was there anything that particularly caused it? Do you think it was just, you know, being in a new environment or do you think it had always kind of been there? At the time I had a theory and my theory because I had just gotten the birth control implant a couple of months before I started dealing with the depression. And so my mom and I, once I finally admitted to my mom, which I honestly don't know why I didn't admit it to her sooner because my mom is literally my best friend. She's the most supportive person in my life by far. And I think it was just kind of the same thing where I wanted to pretend that I was okay. Yeah. But she's also my mom and she like, nothing can be hidden from her. I swear to God, she like has eyes everywhere. Um, <laughs> my mom's Because the same she way. just like, knew. She just knew. Like she just knew I wasn't going to class. She knew I was sleeping all the time, even though I wasn't necessarily telling her about it. But she could definitely tell. Um, and so we dug deep and we did all this research and we found out that like some people, and it it wasn't a lot, it wasn't even enough for them to put it as a potential side effect of the medication. Wow. But there were all these forums that my mom had found where people were saying, yeah, I got super depressed after I got my implant placed. And then after I had it taken out, everything went back to normal. (sighs) So that was my theory originally. Lucky you. Uh, Well, I, I no longer believe that theory. 
basically, so like once we decided that that was probably what it was, I had it removed. And then, you know, a few months later, things were better, but I don't think they ever really like went back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing was ever really back to like where it was pre depression. Um, but I definitely like leaned on that and, you know, by the time things had started getting better, I had graduated from undergraduate school. And so there weren't as many things that were weighing me down. Like I wasn't stressed about classes. I wasn't stressed about a whole lot, really. Like I I got a full-time job when I came home after like a few weeks of just kind of sitting on my butt being sad. And then I started working full-time and I made some friends and things were good. And then I started grad school. And right before I started grad school, actually, I went to my general practitioner and I said, hey, I have this history of anxiety. I really think I should try to figure out some kind of medication before I go in so that I'm handling it. I was going to ask if you were on any medication. I was. Okay. Sorry. Continue. It's okay. No, it's okay. Um, So I went on Zoloft or Truly, I was on sertraline, but that's just like the generic form of Zoloft. And I was on the lowest dose, so I was only taking half of a pill a day because they couldn't even prescribe me a low enough dosage in like a pill form. I literally had to split the pills every day. Oh, wow. Uh, And it was working really, really well for my anxiety. So I went into grad school, and I was doing okay. Um, My first semester in the summer, we had an online class that I completely forgot about, and so that kind (sighs) of my GPA. Oh no. Right away. Yeah. And it has caused problems ever since, but I was, I was handling things well enough. Um, sorry. What made you go to grad school? Oh, so I graduated high school and I decided I wanted to be an art teacher. Okay. So I started out in undergrad doing art education. And then I realized that I didn't want to teach in the state I was going to school in because it's very low in terms of how their education is. I went to school in South Dakota (laughs) and I didn't love it. And they are actually second to last, or at least they were at the time in education in the United States. Wow. Uh, Both in terms of like their programming and in terms of how their teachers are paid. So I I didn't want to teach there. there. I remember you making a comment like, (laughs) I'm glad I don't live there anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I'm much happier now that I'm not living in South Dakota anymore. Um, And especially because I grew up in a state where it's actually one of the best states in education. So going from that to South Dakota and wanting to move back after I graduated, I knew that there was really not a huge point in me graduating with a teaching license in South Dakota when I didn't plan on teaching there at all ever. And knowing that I would have to go through further education to get my license in the state I was from. Right. So I talked with my mom because, again, she's the most wonderful woman in the world. And she just is super supportive of me. And we found this program through the state university where I'm from. And I applied to that for grad school. And it was a year-long master's in education along with a teaching license. And it was a very intensive program. And they made sure to say that when you went through your application process. And I was like, that's fine. I never took less than 17 credits a semester in college. I'll do great. I was going to say a year doesn't sound like a very long time, but they probably pack a lot of stuff into it. It's crazy. So that first summer, we, I want to say we took like 12 credits in the summer, which might actually be more than we took. But I just, I don't remember off the top of my head because it feels like so long ago, just because the last couple of years for me have been really hard. So this Um, was two years ago when you started the master's program? 
So I graduated college in December of 2016, and then I started the graduate program that following May. So yeah, it, it'll be two years ago this May. So you're 22. I'm 24. Oh, no, when you started it, you were 22. Uh, yes. Okay. Sorry, I'm trying to get it all straight in my head. Yeah, so... So yeah, I was very young starting. I was actually the youngest in my program except for one other student. But that's also um, cool that you, I mean, it has its drawbacks, but it's cool that you were able to accomplish all this at such a young age, you know, like start on your career path and everything. I mean, thanks. <laughs> a lot has changed. Well, yeah, you're, <laughs> so, you're about to give us the messy parts of the story, so I probably like, shouldn't speak so soon. Yeah, I... I feel like I made a lot of very rash decisions at the time. Like I I think that I, there are a lot of times where my life has come to a crossroads and instead of like really taking a step back and thinking like, am I, am I choosing the path that's best for me or am I choosing the path that I think is right instead? Mm. And obviously it's so silly and it's, I, I do think it's a really big part of my anxiety too, to, to think that like, what if I had done something different? Yeah. It's so easy to step back on that and been like, well, I would have been so much better off if I had done this other thing instead. But like, if I'm really honest with myself, I don't think it would have made any difference. Like, I don't think I wouldn't have gotten depressed. I don't think it would have changed my life in any way if I had done things differently. I just would have struggled through different experiences instead. So you think it's all like in your nature to be depressed? I, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I would say it that way just because that kind of seems like I'm taking a defeatist attitude about it where I'm like well it's just it's just part of who I am which is true in a sense but I also think that like there are ways that I need to be better about combating it and recognizing it but I also just like I think it's a little bit of a defense mechanism like both sides of the what ifs are a defense mechanism where I'm trying to use that as a crutch to think that I would have been so much better but I just I don't think that's a healthy way for me to think about it I guess like I think it's better for me to think about it and you know recognize that these are struggles that are part of my brain chemistry and that it doesn't really matter what I was doing would I have been more successful in a traditional graduate school program maybe is it fair for me to think that I'm a failure because I did struggle in this intensive program instead no Well, that's what I mean. Like, sometimes it's just part of your brain chemistry. Right. Yeah. I think that it's easier for me to think of it in that way, just because I I don't think that it happened through, like, any specific event, necessarily. Although there are many events that happen that I do think have been very significant in terms of fueling my depression. So, yeah, continue with your story. So, you started grad school. Yeah, I started grad school, and I failed the one class, so my GPA was totally tanked. And... I did well in other classes and I did okay in other classes, but ultimately that, that F kept dragging my GPA down. And this program had like a minimum GPA requirement for graduation. And so in the fall, I was taking my classes and my professors and advisors didn't really say anything to me about it. And I was still really struggling with everything. I had moved in with a girl who was super toxic and honestly the devil. Uh, (laughs) She was the worst, but. Mostly because, like, she would do things that, like, would specifically trigger different parts of my mental illnesses and, like, different things about them. Oh, Um, you mentioned her before. Yeah. You can talk about her. I'm sure we'll talk about her later. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, she just, yeah, it, it just seemed like she would like go out of her way to literally just to trigger me. And I, I don't really like saying that word because I think it's become such a, a joke to people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so triggered. But like, she really did like trigger you. Yeah. And she like did it on purpose too. Cause like, I'm an extremely forgiving person. And I like to give people a million chances. But, like, after a certain point, I was like, this isn't an accident anymore. Like, this is very clearly purposeful, and I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah, fuck um, that. But, basically, I was I was struggling through the, the fall semester, and then it came to January, and we had a J-term class. And my professor sat down with me, and they were like, listen, we're really worried about your program. We're really worried about your GPA. We're really worried about where you're at, so you are – on academic probation, basically, and they kind of gave me these, like, stipulations that I had to be at every class for that J-term class. I had to go to every single session, and I had to end the class with an A. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay. And they basically were like, you have to do this, or we won't put you into your student teaching placement, which at that point, I already knew what my student te- teaching placement was going to be, and I was really, really excited about it, because so I have... you got placed in the student teaching placement like after the one year or was it dirt part so of the it was program? like it was like summer and then fall semester and then j term and then you got placed into your student teaching for spring semester and then you graduated that okay, was the cool. way it was supposed to work um sorry i didn't mean fall, to interrupt no it's okay i didn't really do a good job explaining it so yeah <laughs> that's that's how it was supposed to go for for everybody in my cohort except for me that's how it went in the fall we actually were working in those schools we were like observing and working alongside the teachers we weren't teaching any lessons but we were just observing at least and we were in the classroom meeting the students working with the teachers that we would be working with in the spring so we knew where our placements were going to be and I was super excited about mine I work in special education okay and one of my placements does did sorry didn't actually go but um one of my placements did a lot for adapted art which is essentially working with students with special needs and you're creating lessons that are specifically tailored to approach their IEP goals. It's a really, really beneficial thing for their education to participate in that kind of art programming. And it was the first time I had seen a school that had the art teacher doing that programming. And that made me really excited because that was something that I really wanted to do. So I was really upset about the idea of potentially losing this placement So I, like, kicked ass in my J-term class. I worked so, so hard. But what happened was this girl that I had been living with. The roommate from hell? Yeah, Satan (laughs) incarnate. She threatened suicide at her job. Oh, fuck. And she worked with preschoolers with autism. (gasps) And... Literally in the preschool classroom in front of the children and all of her coworkers threatened suicide and got sent home. Oh and my god. Needed somebody to babysit her and make sure that she didn't actually take her life. Um my jaw is like dropped open right now. Yeah. That's so, so fucked up. So I stayed home and I made sure that she didn't kill herself. And I didn't feel like it was my place to disclose that my roommate was having mental health troubles to my professor. So my original email I sent to him said, 
I'm not feeling well. I'll go to the doctor and bring a doctor's note on Monday, basically. Oh, no. And then when I went in on Monday, I explained to him. And there was some other stuff that went on in my personal life that I don't necessarily want to discuss on the podcast just because I never got permission from that other person to... Of course. Give that information out. Um, But it was... we'll, We'll just go with the fact that it's very similar. So I had two people in my life that were struggling a lot with their own mental health and... I was kind of caught in the middle of it. I had to babysit my roommate basically to make sure that she didn't take her own life. And then I went to class on Monday and I pulled my professor aside at the end of class and I said, hey, I know I sent you this email on Friday. This was the true situation. I had to stay home and I didn't feel like I could tell you that my roommate was having these troubles without getting her permission first. It just didn't feel right to me. And he was really nice about it. Like he, I like cried because it was, upsetting and stressful for me and he was like oh I'm so sorry that must have been really hard for you I can't even imagine what you're going through right now like don't worry about it I totally understand but then like a week or so later and this was like between like the middle of the J term and the end like I had like maybe a week left and so a week later my advisors and professors all had a meeting with me and they were like So we think it was really unprofessional of you to give a different written reason to the reason that you told your professor in person about why you missed class. And for that reason, we don't feel comfortable placing you in your student teaching placement. Oh, my God. Boom. Everything hit me all at once. I wasn't student teaching anymore. I wasn't going to be a teacher. I was like, it felt like this plan that I had for myself for five years at that point had all come crashing down. Well, yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) And they, you know, still in this meeting, I had started crying and they were like, you have these three options. You can take a leave of absence. You can continue with the master's of education without the teaching license, or you can essentially start the whole thing over again this coming May. And I was like, well, I'm not taking a leave of absence because I don't think that'll good for, that will be good for me. And I don't think I'll come back. So I was like, that option is off the table right away. I was like, I don't know how I really feel about starting all of this over because it clearly hasn't gone that well for me in the first place. Like I've, I've really been struggling and I don't feel like that's the best choice for me right now. So I chose to continue along with the masters. And like I said before, it, it was like my life came to a crossroads and I didn't necessarily think about like what would really be the best choice for me. I just thought about what, would continually, like, continue me close enough to the path that I had attempted to be on. So I continued with the master's, and I did spring semester, and I took a museum studies class, and I retook the drug and alcohol class, which honestly was a super poor choice, because I only got a B in it, and then I found out that my advisor, when she told me that just like in undergrad, if you retook a class, the original grade would drop away and be replaced... Apparently in grad school, it's not like that. It's just that they both sit on your transcripts. And I'm like, so you're telling me I took another class and I paid for it and it didn't even do what we thought it would do. Uh. So that was super frustrating. I went on with the semester. I took my museum studies class. It was the best class I've ever taken. I got an A in it and it honestly made me super, super happy. Our professor was the director of one of the museums in my city that's connected with the university. And she's amazing. And she really liked me. And I'm actually doing an internship at that museum starting on the 30th of the month. Cool. And I'm really excited. So um, what goes into museum studies? Um, <laughs> In anything, a nutshell, if you can. 
basically, um, that class talked about kind of everything to do with working in a museum. So it went through like every museum department. So, uh, talked about curating. It talked about registrar. It talked about education. It talked about the maintenance department, basically. I don't think that's what it's really called. I don't remember, (laughs) but like it talked about like emergency planning and things like that. And then it talked about the museum store and it talked about what they call development, which is basically asking people for money. So at this point, were you like changing your life focus kind of, or were you just kind of adding on to what you'd already accumulated? Um, a little bit of both because essentially when all of the shit went down in January with them not giving me my placement and me having to continue to work in my part-time job in a school with children, I felt very removed from education. And I was like, I really don't want to be a teacher anymore. I don't feel capable of being a successful teacher because that was essentially how they had made me feel when they... That just sucks because it wasn't even your fault. I mean... Yeah, those specific circumstances weren't, but I think it's really dishonest of me if I try to say that, like, me not doing well in the classes before that wasn't my fault. I mean, yes, I was struggling with mental illness and depression and anxiety, but, like... And we'll get to I that later. been a different student. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that... I think that spring semester and just going forward with that was really when my depression hit me hardest. Um, and even though I felt like I was really successful in my museum studies class and I was doing really well and I really loved that portion of what I was doing, I wasn't happy and I felt like I was just really lost. And so, yes, in a way I was kind of trying to change my direction, but I also feel like I was hanging on so closely to what I thought I wanted to do for such a long time that I wasn't really letting myself move away, even though I didn't want to be a teacher it was such like a, a an integral part of my personality that I wanted to be an art teacher. And that was who I was. And yeah, it's hard to give that up. Right. And so so when that went away, it, it was a lot of struggle and like internal strife where I was like, well, who am I if this isn't what I'm doing? And so even though I did really, really well in that semester, I got to the summer and I wasn't in classes for the first time since high school. I wasn't taking summer courses. And it was honestly really refreshing. But I also kind of let myself fall deeper into the pit of my depression. And I actually got to the point where I was living with my boyfriend and he has a bunch of firearms, which is an interest of his and he's safe about it. So I'm okay with it. But he got to the point where he was like, listen, I'm not comfortable having my firearms in the apartment anymore. And I'm going to move them to your parents' house because I just, I can't trust you in your current state not to make a poor choice to use my firearms to end your life and I couldn't live my with myself if that's responsible of him though it was very responsible of him and it was definitely the right choice to make and I actually before I even started my fall semester this year I actually asked him to move them back to my parents house again not that I was in the same place that I was in but I was like you know what this happened before I don't know how I'm going to do in my courses this fall I'm hoping it doesn't get to that point, but just in case, I would like you to move them. And he did. Yeah, why take the risk? Right. And he's always been very understanding. So he did move them, and he was very sweet about it, and he was very supportive of me. But basically, like, that was... He kind of got to his breaking point, and... Was this over the summer when you didn't have classes? Okay. I think it was, like, this past June. And 
he basically was like, you need to start seeing a therapist or I like, I, this isn't my job. I can't help you with this any further. Like I'm not qualified to give you any help that you need. So you need to find a therapist and you need to do it quickly because I'm worried about you. Of course he like had this conversation with me when I was laying in bed and like being a garbage human and not actually like working to better myself. And I think he just got really sick of me like complaining (laughs) Well, yeah, so can, like not doing anything. I think we should talk about how healthy that is and how important that is when you're in that position. Like it's it reminds me of the position you were in with your roommate from hell. Like it's kind of a tricky conversation to have because, you know, being su- suicidal isn't something to joke about or like take lightly, obviously. But also, I think the way that you she treated you or that you felt like you had to handle it was really unfair and I think it would have been totally valid if you had, you know, spoken up and said, like, hey, this, I can't do this. I'm not qualified, you know. So in relation to the roommate thing, I didn't really have any idea that she was dealing with suicidal ideation until that day. Okay. And so I think the reason that I dealt with it was because I was so overwhelmed with the idea that she was even in that place that I was like, oh, holy shit. Uh, like, okay, like, what can I do? Like, I guess I'm just going to be here and make sure you don't do anything. Um, whereas, you know, my boyfriend, on the other hand, I had clearly spoken to him about the fact that I was depressed and I was struggling and I had all these things that were getting me down and I wasn't actively trying to find a therapist and I wasn't doing anything about my, my poor body image. And I wasn't doing anything about all these different things that I was complaining to him about. And he finally was like, you need to find a therapist because I can't help you. Okay. And I do like, I'm so thankful to him for that. Yeah, I mean, it's good that he was honest. Yeah, definitely. So I I started seeing a therapist, and it was great. I saw her for a couple months, and it really did help a lot at first. Um, Hold on one second. My roommate is locked out. I have to go let her in. (laughs) (laughs) Give me one second. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, Where were we? I was talking about my therapist. Okay, yeah, continue. So it was really good for me at first, and I felt like I was getting a lot of benefits from it. But basically, her style of therapy, which is really good for some people, and it was definitely what I needed in that moment, but it was basically just talk therapy. Like, I would talk to her and talk to her about my issues and what I was dealing with and how I felt like I was doing and all this stuff. There was never really any sort of solutions. It was just like Like, she listened to you, and then you left. Yeah. felt a little better until the next time when it got repeated. Yeah, I just, like, bitched about my life for an hour, and I paid her a lot of money to do so, and then, like, after a little while, I was like, you know, I don't feel like I really have any new coping mechanisms for how (laughs) to deal with when I feel this way. Like, as much as I enjoy being able to, like, bitch and moan about my issues and be able to kind of, like, come to a conclusion about, like, why I felt a certain way about a certain thing... I don't feel like it's really worth, and this sounds really bad because I do really value therapy and I think it's really, really good. And I think more people should go. Yeah. It's just that I needed a more like solution oriented therapy rather than like, I'm going to whine to you for an hour and then leave and not really have any sort of conclusion or solution. (laughs) And like, honestly, I think my boyfriend was still kind of frustrated with me because he was like, okay, you're going to therapy, but like, you still don't have any way to like help yourself on your bad days. And I think that's been like, still to this day, the hardest struggle for me. And I got really frustrated because I was kind of like, okay, like I'm going to therapy and it helped at first, but like now it's not really doing anything. And so I stopped 
going, which is bad. And if you go to therapy, you should definitely have a chat with your therapist about what's not working for you. And then they can find a solution and try to fix it, which I didn't do. And I'm (laughs) honest about that. But I also think that I, you know, through therapy with her, I got myself to a place where I was in a much better place. Like I don't really struggle with my depression as much as I used to. Good. And my anxiety wasn't really as bad. Like, it's still there. Like, I, I'm not ever going to lie to myself about thinking that I'm somehow cured of my depression. Like, I, I really thought that after undergrad when I graduated and, like, right before I started my grad school adventure. But the other thing is that last spring, when my depression was at its worst, I realized that the Zoloft that I had been taking to medicate my anxiety was making my depression significantly worse. And so I, at at the time I went to my doctor and I was like, Hey, I think I need to switch medications. And she was like, let's try upping the dose. And I was like, all right, you're the doctor. So I started taking a full pill instead of a half a pill. Cause like I said, I had to cut them in half because my dosage was so small. Right. And I immediately, like within a couple of days could tell that that was not the solution. And I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm just take it. Like I'm stopping this medication because I felt like I had gone to the doctor. I had voiced my concerns and I felt kind of ignored. And I feel like I've, felt that way a lot with people who are like older than me or like more of an expert in a certain topic where I'll be like hey I don't think this is working or I think I have certain qualifications that make me fit for this position or whatever and they're like oh but do you really and I'm like (laughs) okay cool I'll just go fuck myself so I did another thing that you're definitely not supposed to do um and I stopped taking my Zoloft coat just completely cold turkey. So of course there was a period of time where I was even worse because Zoloft is nothing to fuck with and you're not supposed to just stop taking it. Like it's one of those drugs that you have to wean yourself off of. And I did not. So what happened? <laughs> so that kind of corresponded with the time where my boyfriend was like, listen, you really need to go fucking see somebody about your issues and I'm taking my guns out of the apartment and all oh that stuff. God. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. So then you saw a therapist for a while and she kind of helped, but not really. And then you said, you just stopped seeing her like cold turkey yeah and I mean I should say she definitely helped a lot like I'm now in a place where I am handling my mental illnesses much better I mean like I said that doesn't mean that they don't affect me day to day I just a couple days ago had a day where I just like really didn't feel like I could get myself out of bed very easily and so like I still struggle. I do think that like these these disorders and these illnesses are a part of who I am and they're like inherently part of my brain chemistry and they're not something that I'm just going to be able to like wish away or like drink more water and magically I'll not be depressed yeah. anymore. You know? like <laughs> there's works. no I know, right? People are like, "Have you tried working out?" And I'm like, "Oh, wow, I'm cured. Thanks." <laughs> you know, I never thought that like going on a run would just like magically make me happy, which Spoiler alert, it really doesn't make me happy at all. I hate running. Me too, Uh, dude. It's the worst. But yeah, so I mean, I've just kind of, I feel like my mindset now is more of like, how do I live my best life with these disorders rather than having the mindset of like, how do I cure myself of these disorders? And that's the thing. A lot of people just try so hard to get rid of them when in fact, like you said, it's part of their body chemistry. Like you need to work around it and figure out how you can thrive in spite of them. And I know you wanted to talk about education and how it comes into play with all this because you have spent a lot of time 
in education and like not only as a student but also you're kind of like you want to be an educator as well and um like how do you think your own mental health struggles have played into that how have they played into me wanting to be an educator yeah like being or being someone who has been a student while struggling with mental health and then also wanting to be an educator like how do you think that's impacted your approach specifically so most of the work I do in education right now is in special education and while I don't currently work in our EBD room I have had experience EBD is emotional behavioral disorder and so that just kind of encompasses the students who have anxiety or depression or it's kind of like the mental health portion of special education so students who have mental health issues that are significant enough that they're affecting their education. Some of these kids, you know, some of them fit into a lot of different, I guess, spaces in terms of our special education system. I'm, I'm the person who brought up comorbidity and comorbid disorders. Which is a huge so, thing. It is, yeah, and it's actually extremely common. So, like, I have anxiety comorbid with depression, and I have a lot of kids who have anxiety comorbid with autism, or they deal with the same kinds of things as I do. And so, luckily, there's a lot of... There are a lot of resources for kids in education, but I don't know if I feel like there's enough. No, yeah, I, I don't think so either. Well, and, and part of it is just that in the United States, there's not a lot of value placed on education, and so there's not a lot of funding given to education, and... There are a lot of programs that could be extremely beneficial to mental and emotional health in schools that are cut, i.e. art, music, gym, in favor of adding more academic coursework. The other thing that I think is really difficult is standards. And it's funny because this is coming from somebody who was so ready to get straight into the school system and be a teacher and work with standards and do all that stuff. But I honestly think that standards and you know the whole no child left behind thing does more harm than good I think it's really foolish to treat every child as though their learning style and their needs are all the same Um, and that's I think one of the beauties of working in special education is that you do tailor your lessons a lot more to each individual student rather than in general education maybe it's because I was homeschooled for the majority of my life but I don't um know what no child left behind means I'm not like an expert with NCLB stuff, but I know that it was kind of like the thing that really pushed standardized testing and it basically kind of like, it pushed the idea of standards onto teachers. And so like it- it, Where was it before? I honestly, I don't really know because all of my (laughs) education, because that happened in like the early aughts. So like that was when I was in school. Like I started first grade in like 2001 I'm pretty sure that's like when No Child Left Behind was passed. And the whole idea was that like your testing would show if your teaching was reaching every student. I truly believe that it, like I said, has caused more harm than good. And so you you start teaching to, you're teaching kids how to take a test rather than teaching kids the information. Gotcha. And so like with the emphasis being so much on testing and not just testing, but standardized testing, that's why we've seen such a loss of programming in the arts and in physical education because that's not what's quote-unquote important to education in this day and age. You know, for a while it was testing in general and then it became more of a focus on STEM, so like science, technology, engineering, and math. Now they're trying to turn it into STEAM, which includes the arts, 
Oh, but I haven't heard about that. It's kind of new, but like kind of not. And I don't know if I've just been hearing more about it because I was in school to be an art educator and they're trying Probably. to like convince us that we have some kind of job security when we don't really. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I don't have strong feelings about this at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like I said, I, I, I really feel like education in recent years has been more about teaching kids how to take a test and teaching kids how to memorize information rather than actually focusing on like, what are the ways that we can teach kids something in a way that they'll truly retain the information. And so how Um, does mental illness play into all this? Like if you're you're a child that has a mental illness. I mean, test anxiety is is a real thing. And so there are a lot of kids where like that their anxiety, since it isn't just like general anxiety, it's not really caught because they're not, you know, they're not high, strong and stressed out children. And so they tend to do really poorly on tests. And so they're placed into lower groups in their learning. So like in my experience, a lot of general education classrooms, the kids will be split up into groups when they're learning reading and math and they'll go through different stations and the teachers will, when they're teaching the lessons, kind of like focus on the level of that group. And what happens if your child who has test anxiety and performs really poorly on the tests you get placed into this lower group and then you're bored by the curriculum because right. it's lower than where you're truly at cognitively. And so then they're not focusing. They're not really learning anything. They feel bored. They end up doing even worse on the test because like of the anxiety. spiral. Right. And then they feel frustrated with school and there's all sorts of other issues that happen. And, you know, when a kid's bored in class, they can act out and then they end up getting diagnosed with like ADHD or something because little Timmy just can't focus in class. And it's like, well, yeah, because you put him in this like lowest level reading group when he can read at a fourth grade level and he's in kindergarten. And the only reason you don't have that information is because you're focusing on these testing numbers that don't accurately represent where he's at. You know, with the kids who have more severe mental illness issues with like depression and things, you see kids that are not necessarily bored with the curriculum, but they're just withdrawing as a symptom of their anxiety or their depression. And so they tend to do more poorly in courses. And then, you know, it's the same kind of downward spiral. And so rather than recognizing these different forms of mental illness and supporting them adequately, you see a lot more of the like, well, you're not doing well in school. So clearly you're just stupid. So let's try to teach you this like lower level curriculum rather than a support system that says like, hey, I can see you're struggling. Let me know how I can help you. And like showing the student that you're there for them as a human being rather than just a statistic. So I know there was someone on Peach who commented, um, shout out Unfair Refrigerator. They commented and they said that they wanted to know like what a modern day looks like for kids with mental illness and like how prepared or ill-prepared the current school system is, which you just talked about. I guess they were asking like what kind of things someone whose child is struggling could look into if they are caught up in this like red tape of going to doctors and psychiatrists and counselors and all that stuff once you get caught up in this, it seems like it would be hard to find a way out. I mean, the biggest thing I can say right away is that a parent who recognizes that and is already trying to work with the school and trying to find solutions is miles ahead of, I would say, probably a good 80% of the families that I know in my personal school. feel like a lot of the parents don't really care or they don't know? I wouldn't say it's that they don't care. It's that they're not. And I mean, granted, I don't see every aspect of it so they could just be really burned out or really overwhelmed with other things in their life um the biggest thing is supporting your child the best you can if that means finding them therapy services if that means sitting down for an hour a night and helping them with their homework and that doesn't necessarily mean like 
being like, oh, what's two plus two? The answer is four and like doing it for them. It just means like maybe sitting down with them and saying, hey, you can do this. And if you need my help, I'm here. So like you can sit down with like your work or your planner or something that you need to do anyways and just sit down with them at the kitchen table and do work alongside them. And that gives them a space where they know they're supported and they know they can ask questions if they need to. I think a lot of it, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how I'm a perfectionist and I know a lot of other kids in the school system are also perfectionists. And I think that goes hand in hand with anxiety a lot of times. And so you have these kids that are so afraid of getting anything wrong that they don't even start the work to begin with. If you're there and you're, you know, showing them and telling them, it's not just about saying, hey, if you have a question or need help on your homework, you come find me and you ask. Like if you're physically there, they're much more likely to ask. That's a good And they might not even need you. But like physically being in that space gives them the support that they might need. So that's one thing. The other thing is just communication, like making sure you're communicating with their general education teachers if they're not in special education, communicating with the counselors saying, hey, my child is dealing with this, that and the other thing. Like I, I might need, you know, they might come into your office and talk to you. Maybe we can set up an appointment or just like making sure that you're you're telling people what's going on to a certain extent. You know, yeah. you don't give your child's teachers their life story and tell them oh my daughter got her period for the first time the other day so she might be a little stressed (laughs) out like they don't need to know that but like letting them know that like things aren't super easy and my child might be stressed out and struggling lets them know that they either need to be more supportive or back off Hmm. because there's a lot of teachers you know it depends on their teaching style but there's a lot of teachers who might see a kid slacking and be like what are you doing why aren't you working and like get really in their face which will cause some kids to withdraw and other kids to like push back and be like, well, I don't have to do anything you tell me to do because you can't force me. Yeah. It really depends Um, on the kid. It does. And I mean, hopefully a teacher that has your child will know that, but that's the other thing that you can do is if you know your child's learning style or what they need from their teacher in terms of support, if they need more of a pusher, they need more of a kind of like supportive background person, you can let the teacher know. And usually if they're a good teacher, they'll do their best to accommodate that. And then the last thing is just, you know, if you think your student needs special services like speech services or, you know, mental health services, reach out to administration and see if you can do an evaluation to get your child an IEP or a 504 plan. Um, And so an IEP is an individualized education plan. If your child is dealing with, I don't want to say less significant because obviously everything that's affecting your child's learning is significant, but... Something where, like, your child is anxious and they're withdrawing more and they're doing poorly in school or they have really bad anxiety and you know that it's affecting their learning, but they're not necessarily have out, having outbursts in class. They're probably not going to be placed on an IEP by the school unless they're affecting their peers, which sounds so terrible. Yeah, it's like they have but, to act out to get the special right. treatment. Unless the parents reach out. And, like, if, if it's something that you think your child would benefit from, then absolutely reach out and say, hey, I'd really like to have a meeting and maybe put my child on an IEP or a 504. Um, and a 504 is basically, it's very similar to an IEP. I don't remember off the top of my head the exact differences just because I personally don't deal with 504 plans at all. But it's it's like an IEP light. <laughs> Um, so what does an IEP look like? It'll go through whatever sort of disability the child has, and then it'll go through goals 
that the school administration has for those child's like their their learning goals. So, for example, if I have a student with a developmental or cognitive disability, one of their goals might be they'll go from reciting 50 of 100 numbers to reciting 75 in this period. Like the whole point of them is to be specific, measurable and attainable. Okay. And like with a certain time period. Yeah, they want to keep up with their peers. There's an R in there too. It's it's the acronym SMART. They're SMART goals. So, so there's many specific, acronyms to keep up with. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's education for you. Um, <laughs> we love acronyms. Basically, the whole the whole idea is that you it's it's a plan to make sure that that specific individual student is meeting their educational goals. So it goes through what those goals are, how they're planning on meeting them, and then if the child has an IEP, there's usually some sort of tracking going on of how how they're doing on their goals and if those goals need to be changed. And with a lot of the students that I work with, I'm in our developmental and cognitive disability room teaching adapted art currently, and I love it. And a lot of what I do with that is like I develop lessons that will approach specific goals with the students if they're social goals or fine motor goals or things like that. I don't necessarily do any of the tracking for it, but I know that the lessons that I'm doing are helping with the development of those goals. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. So like a lot of my students have fine motor goals. So I'm like, this student will hold a pencil correctly five out of 10 times or something like that. And I mean, those goals are a lot different than, you know, the goals that would happen with a student with mental health issues. And I'm not personally as familiar with those because like I said, those aren't the students that I'm working with. But I know that a lot of the services that are offered for those students in my school are like behavioral regulation. So they'll go to like a social skills class or a behavioral regulation class or an organizational skills class. A big thing that we work with with students is we call it identifying your zones. So they basically go through and they have to, they talk about different situations like, oh, somebody takes your ball at recess and like, what zone would you be in? And they can answer anywhere from like, oh, I would be in the red zone. I would be really, really angry and I would really want to like do something that maybe wouldn't be a good choice. And so then after they identify what zone they would be in, they then discuss with the teacher, okay, what are some potential solutions? Like, how can you deal with your feelings when you're in that zone in a safe and responsible way? And Does so I think- Does it go from like blue to red or, or Yeah, green? and blue is actually like, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling withdrawn. And green is like, I'm feeling great, yeah. And then that there's sounds like something people. that everyone could use in their yeah, life. Exactly. Yeah, it for sure is. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to uh, ask you, like, if you felt like help dealing with these kids and helping these kids has helped you in your own mental health journey. It really depends on the day. And honestly, I feel like it affects me more positively when I'm teaching adapted art. Another part of my job that I do part time is I work one on one with a single student and It's funny because I have worked with more traditionally difficult students in the past, you know, students that are completely nonverbal. And so, you know, every behavior serves a function. And that's something that like if somebody took away nothing else from this entire podcast episode, except for the words, every behavior serves a function in terms of mental health and education and literally everything in life, you know, you could even put it towards like training a dog. But like every behavior serves a function. And so for the student that I worked with who was nonverbal, they would 
get very physical. And when they were very upset, I I got my shins kicked. I got my hair pulled. I got pinched. I got hit. But like the thing is like that student had no other way to communicate. You know, like they would also have other behaviors that were very affectionate. So like when they were having a really good day, like I would get a hug or like they would lean their head on me when they felt like I was supporting them well. Like a lot of things for that student was like working on reading with them and like while they were nonverbal, they still recognized like letters and letter sounds. So even though they wouldn't read the full word, they would vocalize that first letter. Mm-hmm. And like you knew that they were cognitively understanding what was happening in that book because they were like verbalizing the first letter of the word. I don't know if that truly makes sense in my description of it, but like a lot of the times during that specific portion of the day was when that student would like lean on me and kind of show that like they were trusting of me. And so the highs lot- were really high and the lows were really low. Right. And like with my current student, it's kind of the same thing. Like the highs are high-ish, but the lows are like really, really low. It's so hard because you you try not to take it personally, but like I'm a human being, you know, like I, I there are certain things that I just, I can't yeah. not take things personally every and day of my life. And you're like, you're not just I a know. human being, but you're a human being who has experienced mental illness. And so... I think you bring like that unique aspect to the table. Well, and it's it's hard too because when I have a day where like I know I'm already feeling down or I know I'm already feeling anxious and stressed out and then I go to school and my student is already having like complete active refusal behaviors which basically means that my student is like throwing their pencil away because they don't want to do their work or pushing their chair away from their table and crossing their arms and looking at me like you can't make me or like stomping their feet and saying oh. they're not going to do it. And, like, there have been days where I've already been feeling so low and drained and just, like, emotionally unavailable. And then my student has a day like that within, like, the first five minutes of school. And, like, I end up in tears by the end of the day. To answer your question, yeah, it depends on the day. Like, there are days that are really, really hard and affect me really negatively and make me really not want to go back. Um, How much longer do you have with this program? Like, are, are you graduated yet or what's your plan? With school? Yeah. So I basically went into my fall semester and I had to get an A in both of my classes to be ready to graduate and not have to take any more coursework or pay for it out of pocket. So like basically I was kind of on my last legs receiving financial aid and being able to go to school without having to self-fund. And I mean, although I'll be paying student loans forever, but like still like self-fund in terms of like I have to find the money myself and like scrounge out every penny that I have to be able to pay tuition without having to get loans. That's kind of how I went into the semester. And I was really anxious about it. Actually, um, I managed not to, (laughs) I managed (laughs) not to panic about it throughout the semester. Like I did really well. And I did end up, I just found out a couple up maybe a week ago that I, I did get an A in both my classes. So all I have left is my internship in the spring, which I'll be doing one day a week, which will be great. And then I can graduate in May. So, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. Thanks. I'm really proud of me too. It has <laughs> been like this program has literally taken me to hell and back. And so I'm very ready to be done. It's actually really funny because my museum studies class that I took in the fall, I really loved my professor. She was great. Like those two classes that I took throughout my grad program were the two best classes of my life. I've been super happy. I felt super supported by my professors. They like truly made me feel like I could be successful in that work environment and in that kind of field, which 
is what I've always needed from like teachers and coaches and all of that. I just needed somebody to be like, Hey, you're doing great. And I think you're going to be successful in this. And that, I think that's a big reason why I struggled so much in the program beforehand, because the professors before that really made me feel like I was an idiot. And they made me feel like oh. I was going to be terrible at being a teacher and that I was never going to be successful. And so that like definitely did not help my anxiety when I was in that program. But then I went to the museum study side of things and they were like, you're great. Like you're doing awesome. You've got some really great insight. I love when you, you know, bring things up in class. I think it really helps discussion. I think you've got a really good foot on, you know, where you're at in this and like you, you retain so much information and you do really well in these classes and blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm totally humble bragging about myself. No, you're fine. <laughs> but, you should. Uh, well, so what really made me excited was, so I don't have like a formal thesis for my master's, which is really unusual, but I think it's because most people who get a master's in education are teaching. And so I don't think they expect a formal thesis to be written and defended and everything. But in my museum studies class, I had to write a research paper. Uh, so I wrote a 15-page research paper with like a 12-page annotated bibliography about museum. That's a long bibliography. I know. Damn, well, that's like almost the length of the paper. So I wrote about, my topic was museums and health, basically. So like museums, health, and intellectual accessibility is what I titled my paper. And so I talked about the importance of accessibility outside of, you know, the kind of accessibility that's approached in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then I approached how attending museums can help with your mental and physical health. That's fascinating I, to me. It's super fascinating and I could go on all day. I won't, but it's really interesting. And I found out a lot of like crazy cool stuff about it all. And I turned it in and I got feedback from my professor who again is amazing and incredible and I loved her. So both of the professors that I had in my museum study classes were directors of local museums. So they're not just like, somebody who kind of knows about the museum world they they really know their shit and they're, they're very so I, I feel incredibly blessed to like be able to take courses from people who are in it and they know people and like I already have these two networking connections that are so good but she sent me feedback and she was like this is such an important topic and I think you should submit it to present at this museum association for our state they have a conference every year and she like thinks I should submit it to present at that conference next year are you going to I don't know yet you um, should. <laughs> I think I that think... it would take a little bit more research on my part well, but I think, yeah so... I, I think like obviously don't put too much on your plate that you can't handle but I think it's so important that you're focusing on that and that it is receiving recognition in the community. Yeah. So. And I mean, that's another thing that I like, I feel like I kind of struggle with it because I'm obviously like well educated on the topic, especially in terms of like accessibility and disability awareness and mental health and physical health and like different things like that. Like I don't have a medical degree, but like I've done a lot of research into the way that affects education. And I've always been really interested in, you know, how it's handled in education and different things like that. So I think that I'm a really good person to do research on this, but at the same time, I think I feel a little bit torn because it feels so, sometimes it just kind of feels a little bit dirty to like speak on behalf of such a large group of people Yeah. when I don't have any disabilities myself, you know? Well, like I, I was going to ask you, um, how do you feel like your mental health is these days? Like right now, I feel really good. Good. <laughs> Knowing that I don't have to take another class to be able to graduate other than my internship has me feeling like I'm on top of the world. You know, I said before that I, I do feel like my depression and anxiety will always be a part of me. 
I don't necessarily feel like I'm struggling that much right now. And also, um, yeah, it just, it does depend on your circumstances. Like your circumstances right now are pretty good, so you might be struggling less. But if you were to experience, you know, some negative circumstances, do you think you'd be more equipped to deal with them? Do you think you? Well, have I just said. <laughs> I do. I feel like I'm in a really good place and I feel like I have proof of that just because with, so during finals, I was writing my paper and I was finishing my curriculum to turn in for my independent study. And I found out that my grandpa was in the hospital Oh, shit. And he ended up passing away the, the Tuesday before Christmas. It wasn't easy and it wasn't great. And I mean, I still don't know if I've like fully processed it, but I definitely handled it a lot better than I originally expected myself to. When my mom told me that my grandpa was in the hospital, I was like, great, cool. I'm going to have a meltdown. I'm not going to get anything done. Like everything is due by the end of this week and I'm going to crash and burn. And I mean, like I said, I ended up getting A's in both of my classes. So I did something right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I do feel like I handled everything a lot better now. I think that had that happened to me six months ago, I would have not made it through it. Um, good. You know, like, I mean, not good, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's great that I was able to handle that in the way that I did. You know, do I think I'm going to be here forever? Probably not. Yeah. So, I mean, my anxiety is always there. It's just that I think I'm handling it a little better, I guess. Yeah, and I'm really proud of you for that. Thanks. So what advice would you have for someone who is in school right now, like maybe pursuing an educational career, maybe not. And they're dealing with mental illness themselves. I have a lot of like, do as I say, not as I do advice. Um, <laughs> yes. Story of my life. It's, it's so bad because I like, I feel like I just, I never really swallowed my pride and like did what was best for me. And I feel like that's kind of a pattern. Like I'm, I'm a very like, I can do it myself kind of person. And I definitely should have just like taken the help when it was offered. Um, I definitely think that if you're dealing with anxiety or depression or any sort of other mental health or mental illness and you're in school, you absolutely should visit your university's disability services office. Even though you might not consider yourself disabled in any certain way, like there are services that they can offer to you and there are ways that they can work with you to essentially develop an IEP for college and help you with your circumstances and like help it so that it doesn't affect your education as much as it could if you didn't. Right. Um, and that's not something I ever did. And it's and kind of funny because my professors were like, you really need to go see disability services. And I was like, no, I don't. I'm fine. Well, that's the thing. You <laughs> mentioned earlier that you didn't consider yourself disabled. But when you're talking about your experiences, in my mind, it does seem like you had a disability of a sort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, like, I definitely should have swallowed my pride and gone to university services. But, like, the biggest thing for me was that like, they're going to want me to go and see a therapist and I have seen a therapist and I am seeing a therapist and my therapist is, you know, 45 minutes closer to my house than any therapist they would set me up with at school because I commute to grad school and that commute, depending on, I, I go from a suburb into like the heart of the city that I live in. Not so fun. I was like, you know, I would really rather travel maybe 15 minutes to see my therapist than potentially two hours in traffic getting really cranky. I mean, I guess for anyone listening, like if if it's something you can talk about with your professors or whatever, definitely I, do. Yeah, that's I think that's my biggest piece of advice is like let your professors know that something is going on so that they can work with you. Because if you're depressed and that's why you're missing class, 
I know that it's really hard to go to a doctor and admit like, hey, I think I'm depressed, but having the diagnosis will help you so much in terms of the education world because you can go to your professors and say, look, I have this diagnosis. I'm looking for a way that we can work together to make sure that I don't fail your class, essentially. And that's why, you know, that's another reason why I think going to disability services at a school is important, but also just like being forthright with your professors right away and admitting that you struggle is going to make your life a million times easier. I think going to disability services at a school is more of a formality to make sure that your professors are required to work with you with your mental illness rather than going and saying, I have a disability. It is truly, I think, and granted, I don't have experience with it, so I can't speak as an expert, but I think it is, you know, the, the closest thing to an IEP that you can get in secondary education. So like, essentially, they'll they'll take your your mental health into account and they'll say this is this is the kind of accommodation that this student needs to be successful. And your professors will have to follow that. So if it means that you need more time during an exam, that's what you need. Like if you go and you say, hey, I have test anxiety, I need more time during my test, or I need to take it in a different place, they need to respect that. Or like if it's, I have depression, and I might miss more classes than is, you know, expected as part of your attendance plan, then they have to respect that. It's like, that's, pretty yeah. much it. It's not it's not going in and saying I'm physically disabled and I need a ramp to get into your classroom. Yeah, um, the other advice that I have is really try to like evaluate what's best for you. If you're in school and it's really 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 hard, take a step back. You know, if it's over winter break or during the summer, if you just take a second and evaluate where you're at and where you want to be and is this the right place for me right now? I think that's what's really important. Like there's no shame in taking a gap year or taking a year off or taking a leave of absence to deal with what's going on in your brain. And ultimately I think the most important thing is just making sure that you're okay. Like to me, surviving grad school is way more important than what my GPA says. You know, like the fact that I'm still here is huge to me. And the fact that I made it through, I'm going to throw a fucking rager when I graduate because (laughs) I am just like thrilled to have made it. You know, I, I fucking did it. It's the biggest thing to me. It's totally fine to be proud of yourself for something that seems like it's small. Even if it is a big deal and you're telling yourself that it's not, it's okay to be proud of something that like doesn't seem like a huge deal to you or to anyone else. Like, totally. even if it's just like, I got out of bed today, fucking great job. Like, yes. I showered That's- today. Yeah. I'm fucking proud of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or like, I picked up my dog's shit today. Like, wow, I'm really proud of you. Gold like, star. Please do it all the time, but like. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, or like, even like, I drank a bunch of water today when I usually drink soda or like, just like, I think it's really beneficial to make small goals for yourself throughout the day and be like, you know what, I did this thing and I'm really proud of myself for that. Even though this other thing may not have gone as I expected, I can be proud of this other thing that I set as a goal for myself originally. And I I think those small victories can really add up and help yourself feel a lot better about where you're at, even if you're not 100%, you know, like maybe you didn't leave the apartment today, but you got out of bed and you washed the dishes or you took a shower and then you proceeded to sit down on the couch and watch Netflix all day. You still that's, got out of bed and took a shower. Like, yeah, that's, that's a huge fine. Thing. So we usually wrap up the podcast with like something cool for listeners to check out in the following week. Do you have anything that comes to mind, like a podcast or a book or a movie or anything really? 
I do have a book, though. It's called Furiously Happy. It's by Jenny Lawson. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. Whoa. <laughs> um, so it's basically, it's a comedian blogger person. She's great. And she basically describes, like, the shitty things that have happened in her life in a very, like, funny way. And I think it's a really great way to, like, look at your own life with, like, a kind of like the comedic relief that you need sometimes. I love that. I know I took away a lot of it in like a really, really good way. And like the biggest thing is like just choosing to live your life like furiously happy is kind of like the point of it. And like despite struggling with depression and anxiety and all of these different things, because she really does talk a lot about her own mental health and like how she's dealt with it and kind of come out of it. And I think that's that's really my biggest takeaway. And it's like my favorite book in the world. I read it about a year ago. It's probably about time for me to read it again. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that this weekend. I mean, that's <laughs> why I love comedians so much because they tend to have struggled with mental illnesses and they're very open and honest about it and even humorous about it. Right. And I just love that. Right. And I think a big thing, like, at least for me, I can't deal with my shit unless I'm able to laugh about it. Yeah. And like, I laugh at myself all the time. I think you have all to laugh time. at yourself. I don't think I can like healthily, is that even a word? Yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I can deal with things in a healthy way if I'm not also admitting that like sometimes the things that make me anxious are fucking dumb and that's okay and I have to be able to laugh at it. Like I have to be able to like yes. look at myself having a breakdown over the fact that like I went to McDonald's and they gave me ranch instead of sweet and sour sauce and so like I come home and I cry yes. because I'm so mad. <laughs> Oh my god! And then I throw in the ranch and I leave the the chicken nuggets in the fridge for my boyfriend to eat because I refuse to eat them without sweet and sour sauce. Girl, been there, done that. It's totally then, valid, but also it's hilarious as fuck. Okay. If you can't laugh about it, like, what's the point? You know? Yeah, totally. So yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say, or are we good? I guess not really. I mean, those of you who are already connected to me via various social media sites can feel free to reach out to me if you're ever struggling. I guess. Yeah, seriously. Like, I don't necessarily know if I'm ready for, like, random strangers to find me from the internet, but if you ever have any questions about education or mental illness or how they go hand in hand and you are already somehow connected with me, feel free to reach out. I will help you as best I can. Yeah, you're very knowledgeable. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Been in school a long time, so. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And of course. It's my pleasure. I hope you have a good rest of your semester. And to all those listening, I hope you have a great rest of your week. And yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'm so awkward <laughs> at these like goodbyes. I'm like, yeah, bye. <laughs> it's okay. I feel like every podcast has their like, okay, bye. Well, thank you okay. so much. I'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening. Yeah, I'm just gonna go and let these poor tortured puppies out of their kennels so that yeah. they can stop crying to me because Aww. they're Give just... them kisses for me. Oh, I will. I'll send you tons of pictures. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye.